and open those Bibles up to Matthew 7. We'll be in verses 13 and 14, and we're going to skip a little and go to 24 to 29. But overall, Matthew 7. Sometimes you just, it's, it's magnificent how uh, you might have a passage planned, and sometimes we won't coordinate with uh, these guys who are preparing our music. And then here you have a hymn that matches perfectly uh, to what the passage is for the day. And that's exactly the day that we have. We're going to be talking about foundations, rocks. We're going to be talking about sand uh, that you stand on. So it's, again, it just coheres so well. If you found your spot in Matthew 7, we're going to begin again in verse 13. We'll go to 14 and then we'll jump to 24 and then read the uh, end of that passage. If you would, please stand for the reading of Christ's Word. May you hear the Word of Christ this morning. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Therefore, Verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for another Sunday, another Sabbath, in which we allow our hearts to rest in you. So this morning, as much has already happened from the moment that we opened our eyes, the obstructions, the walls that we've already put up in front of you, Lord, may you topple them down. And may we see your, your very presence and may we be witnesses of it this very morning. May we hear your voice ever so audibly. May it be clear to us that you have spoken today. So open our ears and our hearts at this time to receive the word that is set aside for this morning. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This is it, church, the final and last sermon of the Sermon on the Mount. Nine Sundays it took us to get through, and you can probably see that we didn't make it through every single verse. It's just very difficult to do that in nine Sundays, but... I'd say, for the most part, we hit the heart of it. Um, But today is the last one. Uh, This upcoming Sunday, March 1st, we'll actually jump into a new series on Lent. Uh, For those who pay attention to the church calendar, uh, Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. And this is a season of what we call of penance or uh, repentance as it leads 40 days into Easter. And so we're going to look through a sermon series on Lent starting March 1st up until uh, Resurrection Sunday. So I hope you're excited about that sermon series, because I sure am uh, as well. But today, our last sermon on this, let me begin with this. Since I teach 7th and 8th grade English, we always, always, always 
jump into this poem every single year, and it's one of my favorites, Robert Frost. He was that famous 20th century poet who penned one of America's most legendary poems that is called The Road Not Taken. Here is this poem. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that as passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden back. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Now, if you couldn't capture all that it is you have to read it and reread it just like any good poetry you have to really soak in it in order to really understand what the author is bringing out but I'm going to give you a little summary of what this poem is about Frost in this poem he places us in the woods alongside him and we run across this fork we've traveled through the woods and we see this fork we have two different paths that we are to take and he asks the question, which one should I take? Should we take the one that is well-worn, the one that is most traveled, or should we venture down the grassy path, the one that, quote, wanted wear? It didn't have the same wear as the one that was more traveled. And as you might have picked up, Frost isn't just talking about a hiking trip. He's using this trek, this journey in the woods, as an analogy or a metaphor uh, for the difficult ch uh, choices that we might have in our own lives concerning which path to take. And what is Frost's advice? He tells us in the last stanza, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference, he says. He took the grassier. He took the one less worn. He, want, he took the one that was the more foreign path, the one that very few travelers had taken. Why? Well, he really doesn't tell us why at all, but he does at least tell us that it has made all the difference in the end. Church, Jesus invites us in the Sermon on the Mount, and especially these verses today, to a grassier, to a less worn and more challenging paths. And he assures us that these paths not only lead to him, but on top of that, they will make all the difference in the world. Before we explore verses 13 and 14 where we started a few minutes ago and the ways that this really does make all the difference, I want us to really step back a second and look at one major theme that we find throughout the Gospels as a whole. You see them in two different language. One, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Matthew is favorable towards the kingdom of God. The other gospel writers like kingdom of heaven, but they're synonyms. They mean essentially the same thing. 
But most of the time, and here's where I want to clarify before we get into these verses, most of the time the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God does not mean the place where we go to after death. That's sometimes. Did you hear me? Sometimes when Jesus refers to the kingdom of God, sometimes and rarely He means that place where we go to after death. A majority of the time. Oftentimes, when he talks about this kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, he's conveying about you and I living our current lives, the right now, under the reign and rule of him as king. What does it look like for you to yield and submit the entirety of your lives under this king and his kingdom? That's the major question that he is asking. When he uses this language of gates that we now find in 13 and 14, will you take the narrow gate, will you go through the broad gate, the broad road? What does he mean by this? Well, one author (coughs) points out the context of these verses. He says this, The old walled city of Jerusalem still has several gates, even to this day. Some of the wide roadways so that cars can get through. Some are so wide that others... Uh, can go in large packs through. And then others with steep, narrow uh, steps so that only pedestrians or small animals can actually pass through. And Jesus' hearers, He says, would have been very familiar with this in His day because they would have gone into towns and cities that were exactly like that. They had very small, narrow gates. Some city gates, he says, would be wide enough for several people to go in and out at once. At others, you would have to wait your turn to get through a very specific gate. Jesus sets his face against any idea that you can simply go with the flow, allowing the crowd to set the pace and the direction. That's what that author says. Going with the flow according to Jesus, looks like entering into that broad gate, that broad road that leads for him, he says, to destruction because many enter through it. Instead of venturing through this broad road, Jesus suggests a very different path. Here it is. A path that doesn't lead to destruction, but a way that leads to life, a flourishing life. It looks a whole lot like the path through the narrow gate. And he's pushing us through that narrow gate. But you see how he's illustrating these two different ways? You can either go through this broad gate or you can go through this narrow gate. Those two ways were not uncommon in the Israelites' mind in that day. They would have understood this being a part of the language of wisdom literature. Those three or four books that you have in the Old Testament, especially Proverbs, about choosing ways and paths. Let me read you an excerpt from uh, Proverbs 4. It's just Solomon writing to his son. Hear, my son, and receive my uh, sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the ways of wisdom. I have led you down right paths. Here's that language. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. And when you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of my instructions. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. And here's the part, church. Pick up on this. Do not enter the path of the wicked, 
and do not walk in the way of evil, avoid it, do not travel down it. Turn away from it and pass on, for they do not sleep unless they have done evil. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For they eat bread of wickedness and they drink wine of violence. But the path, here's the other path, the path of the just is like a shining sun that shines ever brighter until the perfect day. The way of the wicked, he ends, is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Here in Proverbs 4, you have the path of the foolish and the path of the wise. The path of the foolish, he says, leads to wickedness, to evil, to injustice, to destruction. Well, what about the path of the wise? <coughs> For this writer of proverb, of this proverb, the path of wisdom offers life. It offers justice. It offers peace. And it offers flourishing before the very face of God Himself. And all across the book of Proverbs, the foolish are the ones who participate in brokenness. The foolish are the ones who participate in sin and death, primarily because they're trying to do life without God in the equation. They're trying their best to live life without God in the, in the equation. That's what the foolish man says. Proverbs 14, the foolish are the ones who say there is no God. Here is what he is after in this passage that we have in Matthew 7. He is inviting us to live a life of wisdom through the narrow gate. And here's the thing. If you've tried living your life contrary to God, it's like running your fingers across the, the opposite side of the grain of a fresh cut piece of wood. You ever tried that? What happens? Splinters. Pain. There's so much about what happens when you run your fingers across against the grain of a fresh cut piece of wood. Splinters and sores, irritations, sores can develop. <clears throat> Jesus, I think in this passage of Matthew 7, He's wanting us to be delivered from that life of foolishness. He's wanting to deliver us into instead a life of wisdom, in a life that's lived under His kingdom. He is, I think, church, trying to escort us into the wisdom that ultimately lives under His rule and His reign. Let's look at verses 24 through 29 now. <clears throat> Therefore, Matthew records, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, and streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears the words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell into a great crash." If there's one detail from this passage of these 24 through 29 that we know plenty about, it's rain. West Tennessee has not had its shortage of rain by any stretch of the imagination. If you've been watching the news, you've seen sinkholes appearing in Jackson. If you've been watching the news, you've seen even in Hardin County 
where a couple of homes were lost to landslides. And as I saw in an update of this past week, is that not only have the homes collapsed due to that landslide, but the road above the homes is starting to collapse as well. This type of illustration that Jesus is giving is very similar to what we understand about what rain can do to a foundation. Winds can do to a foundation. And he's giving us two types of foundation. But in Jesus' day, what would have been the context of this? In his time and day, Herod, which would have been this governor in this place near around large parts of Israel, they were rebuilding the temple that Solomon first built hundreds of years before. Rebuilding it and making it stronger. And they even spoke about the temple as being God's house. And they would have declared that this house, this temple sits where? On the strongest rock in Jerusalem. Yet, if you travel beyond where we're at in Matthew's Gospel, towards the end, Jesus actually warns His hearers that one day that temple itself will come crashing down because Israel continues to rebel against Jesus' teachings. And He was right. About 35 years after Jesus is crucified, it does, it topples down. Rome comes in and completely destroys it. And what we have today of, of the temple is the artifacts, the devastation that Rome caused 2,000 years ago on that particular temple. And you probably remember another story about a rock in the Gospels. That moment outside of Caesarea Philippi where Jesus and uh, Peter had this interaction. And Jesus promises this, to this Peter this, You have said that I am the Messiah. And you're surely right. And what does He say? On this I will build my church. On this rock. On this confession. On you, on the back of you, Peter, I will build my church. Rocks were everywhere in Israel. Sand was well known across Israel. But rocks were considered sturdy. Trustworthy. Rocks were considered reliable. And sand, well, we know it lacks foundation. Therefore, it was not sturdy. It was not trustworthy or reliable. And depending on the foundations, Jesus is cautioning us where we build our homes, our houses. Now, that Greek word that Matthew uses for uh, what Paul, uh, sorry, what uh, Jesus is using here about this home, is not a literal home, but more of a figurative home. And this word would have meant, meant anything from your house, your dwelling, your uh, bodily home. You and your, your body would have been a home for the Spirit. Or even your household or family, the goods that you have, the property or the means that you have. It would have meant many other things in Jesus' day. But how Jesus uses this word right here in this context, I think it's safe for us <coughs> excuse me, to interpret it broadly to mean the entirety of your life. Build your home on my foundation. That is, your goods, your household, your life, your loves, your passions, your relationships, all of it, you are to build on the firm foundation of Jesus Himself. But I think we need to seriously ask ourselves 
what types of homes are we building? You hear? What types of homes are we building today? If I can push up against us for a second, I want to ask some probing questions. Are we building homes where we teach our children to dominate over others or to serve others? Are we extending grace to our spouses? Or are we obligating them to meet unattainable goals? I mean, those are the types of homes that Jesus is talking about practically. If we look a little bit more outside of our physical homes and into our neighborhoods, what types of homes are we building in our neighborhoods? Homes of hospitality? Homes that are filled with care for our neighbors? Or are we just like any other typical American neighborhood where we're closing ourselves off to others? If I can get even more personal, how are you tending to your own home? Your own life? Is your home falling apart? Is it just stable enough where it's standing? Because sometimes we do feel like that in life, right? We're just barely making it through the day. Our home is barely standing. Because, let's face it, as much as we would like to run reality, we can't. The world in which we know it, the reality in which we know it, it's not clean. It's not neat. It's not tidy. Sometimes it's wild. Sometimes it's un- untamable. Sometimes it's chaotic. There's much to be unexpected in our life. There's so much that we cannot see in the future once it comes to pain and difficulties. There's so much of sickness and afflictions that are completely out of our hands. We cannot tame reality. And no matter how well our houses are built, no matter what materials or windows or education or money we make, guess what? When the storm comes, it's still going to reveal the foundation. And Jesus is getting us to think deeply on that. He's trying to bring us into His question and really reflect. What foundation am I building the entirety of my life on? As I said in the beginning, this is the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and of course the conclusion of our sermon series on this. Because if you look at Matthew's uh, chapter here in verses 28-29, it tells us it's the end of His teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew records, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he hasn't, been, he hasn't stopped talking for two chapters. The crowds were amazed at His teaching because He had taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. I think a persistent lesson that you have found and you have seen alongside me in the Sermon on the Mount that's been revealed to us is this. Our choices matter. Our choices matter. Our actions and especially our motives and intentions matter as well. Our choices, our actions, our motives, our intentions matter. We have seen that come up week after week after week after week in these nine sermons, uh, sermons throughout this series. But let me see if I can give us a summary of where we've been so I can show this to you. 
Jesus urges us to be practitioners of the kingdom. In other words, we are to act out the ways of Jesus' kingdom ethic by caring for the poor, the marginalized. That we are to tend to the weakest in our cities by feeding them and seeing them as human beings. That we are to love even the worst of people, especially our enemies. That we are to go second miles with people who may not have in mind our best interests. That we may not, or should not become play actors who hypocritically put on masks and act as if our spiritual lives are better than others in our praying, our fasting, or even our generous giving. That our anxieties, as we saw last week, and our worries that we have are to be given to the God who knows what tomorrow looks like. And moving into today's sermon, that we aren't to take aren't to take the easy pass and instead enter through narrow gates that lead to Jesus. And on top of that, that we are to build our homes, the entirety of our lives, on Christ. That's where we've been. And we have seen again and again that our choices, our motives, and our intentions matter. That our actions truly do matter to Jesus. And this is what it means to be Jesus' church. We have found that time and time again. And in the various examples He's given us. And no matter how much we fall, and no matter how much we fail, and no matter how much we falter, guess what? These teachings that we have found in the Sermon on the Mount, they beckon and they call for us to return again and again to these ways of the kingdom to demonstrate and display a better and more beautiful way to live on the life of our everyday stage. And we live it all before the face of God. Yet here's what's so wild about this upside-down kingdom of Jesus. I'm going to give you two viewpoints here. To us as the church, those who profess Christ as King, the world around us, its doings, its ways, it looks upside down, doesn't it? We can't understand why non-believers would want to put their energy into making more money, into putting all their energy into buying new toys. We may even be confused why non-believers overlook those who are marginalized or the poor. We may even be perplexed why some non-believing families don't center their lives around God Himself. That may seem upside down to us. But let's flip it around and see how the world views us. They look at us and think we're upside down. We act very odd. Why? Because we worship a king who can't be touched. Our behaviors are bizarre because we care for the homeless. Like Jody helped us about a month ago by packing little brown bags with snacks and drinks so that when we saw that person we were showing them the love of Christ by feeding and giving them drink. We may even seem strange in our families because we desire for our children to, to know who this Jesus is and to know Him deeply. I think one Christian author has captured this so well. Here's what he says. When confronted by the Gospel, the natural response from any culture is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Some people will look at Hickory Grove and say, what good can come out of little old Hickory Grove? Just like the question was asked in Jesus' day, what good can come out of Nazareth? That's just a back 
backwards town. It was small, rinky-dink, and there wasn't much expectations coming out of it. What good can come out of Hickory Grove? And I think here's what our response should be, church. Come and see. Come and see. And this author goes on to say this. The kingdom of God dawns in trailer parks and refugee camps. That shouldn't surprise us. And he adds this. The kingdom came to us not from a boardroom, not from some literary guild, but the kingdom came through a feeding trough and an execution stake. So good. And as a testament of our faith, and as a testament of our allegiance to this king, we're to remember, as one former cardinal said this, Christianity as an intellectual system, as a collection of dogmas and a moralism, that's a wrong view. First and foremost, as Cardinal Ratzinger said, Christianity is instead an encounter. It's a love story. That doesn't mean that there aren't teachings, there aren't dogmas in Christianity. Of course there is. But the primary point that we find throughout the Scriptures is this. It is an encounter of a God who loves a people so much He passionately pursues them in order to make them back, bring them back home, move them from former refugees to now prodigals of this King. That is a love story that we find in the Scriptures. And that is and should be our primary aim to demonstrate that as citizens of that kingdom. And yes, the teachings that we find throughout the two chapters that we've dealt with for nine weeks, they can seem demanding. Obviously, they can seem demanding. But, 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 we as disciples of Jesus have already counted the cost. We have counted the cost and we understand what it means to follow this Jesus. So we're given Him our allegiance and we have been sent forth on this great commission to teach others about the love displayed by the Father through His Son and we do this in His Spirit. To be children of the King, church. To be His bride. To be this community of Jesus and to be citizens of the kingdom means we must be willing, here it is, to take the road not taken. Let us travel the path least taken through that narrow gate, not through the broad gate. And we must be willing to build our homes, the entirety of our lives on the foundation of Christ. And we will see our King show up so that others will look at us and say, why is it that you're all about this Jesus? And we'll say, come and see. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again that your mercies are ever so rich every single day. And it sometimes we fail to lean into Your Word. We fail to see the magnificence of Your Word. We fail to see the beauty of Your Word. And Father, forgive us to seeing Your power through Your Word. But at this time, I ask that You would show us that even through the word that was preached this morning, even through the sermons that we've seen and through the Sermon on the Mount that we have 
tried to set our feet in for the past nine weeks, may we see that your kingdom is alive and active in our midst. And it's alive and active through our choices. It is alive and active through our motives and our intentions. And it is certainly alive and active through our actions. If there's one thing that the Sermon on the Mount continues to beckon us toward, it is to be kingdom citizens for our King. And so may we display that in the most humble of ways. It doesn't require us to move mountains. It just requires small acts of obedience, of feeding someone, taking care of someone, of tending to someone's needs, of praying for someone. It is the smallest of acts that truly matter. And it's the smallest of acts that truly reveal who you are. And so Lord, send us to be that people so that we might demonstrate your kingdom has come in and through your Son. Father, we thank you for this morning and the gift of your word. We offer these things in his name. Amen.